If you have a pew Bible or any other Bible, I invite you now to open it to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll read the first seven verses. Uh, But before we do, let me uh, introduce myself again. My name is Jimmy Choi. I'm the associate pastor here, and uh, we're glad to have you. If you're visiting with us, thank you for joining us during this Advent season. It's a special time for us. We really uh, get a lot out of not just decorating this room and this building, but gathering together uh, out of the cold and gathering intentionally to rehearse the story of Jesus Christ come to earth as a child. And so we're continuing on in our Advent series. You've joined us in kind of the middle of the first installment of a three-year Advent series. And we're camping out in the prophecy of Isaiah. So this year, this Advent season, we're focusing on what Isaiah teaches us about Christ as King, or Christus Rex, as it's sometimes known. And if you've been with us the past couple Sundays, Pastor Billy has already uh, provided a lot of background for us in this book, and that'll carry over into today. Into today. Hopefully, you'll find that to be the case. And you know, we could have chosen anywhere in the Bible to preach during Advent. But I think there's something special about Isaiah in particular. He tells the story of the Incarnation in a uniquely dramatic way. Already in the first two chapters, we've seen how the coming of this king brings grace for sinners and peace to a world at war. Isaiah, he has this way of telling it to you straight. He minces no words about our need for such a king. All throughout his prophecy, we're faced with the reality of the human condition as God sees it. During the time of Isaiah's ministry, we've talked about this already, but Israel and Judah have devolved into a kind of spiritual decadence. They're engaging in all kinds of idolatry and injustice, even to the point where God likens them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we saw in chapter 1, the irony of it all was that they had created this decadent culture for themselves, all while maintaining a kind of veneer of religiosity and ritual devotion. Yet God cuts right to the heart of their self-deception, and he warns them of coming judgment if they don't turn from their sin and seek his face. Yet tragically, as we come to chapter 8, we find that God's warning has actually fallen on hard hearts, on deaf ears. And his people continue down this spiral path toward a sort of vortex of fear, anger, rebellion, and unbelief. Instead of repenting, the people continue railing against him, resorting to pagan sorcery and idol worship for relief from their distress, even after God has warned them clearly of the coming invasion by the nation of Assyria. And it's this this whole mess, this whole state of affairs that Isaiah summarizes at the end of chapter 8. He says this, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. 
and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. In other words, if you were to ask Isaiah, what's one word image, Isaiah, that sums up all that's wrong with the world? He might answer, darkness. Darkness. Whether it's sin or suffering, afflictions within or oppression without, all of these realities kind of accumulate together like a thick cloud that darkens our lives. And don't we know something of that in our experience today? Don't we know what that feels like? Sure, our, our circumstances are different today from Israel and Judah, but not unlike them, don't we also feel the shadows deepen as we sang just a few moments ago? As if struggles like depression, chronic illness, social injustice, or trauma from abuse didn't cast a long enough shadow over us, how much darker as we turn in on ourselves for relief through our addictions, our pettiness, or worst of all, religious pride. And so with Isaiah, we look out this Advent season on God's world, including our lives, and we cry out, where is hope to be found? Well, it's in response to that very question, friends, that our passage speaks this morning. And so let's turn now to our passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And allow me to read this for us as we take it in by faith. He who has ears to hear, let him hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you that as dark as life may get, as deeply as we may grieve, 
mourn and lament. None of that do we do without hope. Show us the hope of Jesus Christ as we listen to him speak through his word by his spirit to his people. In his name we ask it. Amen. Where is hope to be found? That's the question on the floor for us. This passage tells us our only hope is a king who comes to shine light into our darkness. Let me say that again. Our only hope is a king who comes to shine his light into our darkness. No sooner does Isaiah finish describing the darkness than in the very next verse, which in the Hebrew Bible is actually the last verse of chapter 8, he suddenly declares, but there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in darkness who is in anguish, excuse me, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now make no mistake, this isn't Isaiah just trying to be sanguine in the face of tough news. In verse 2 he says, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that word for deep darkness, it can also be translated shadow of death. Where have we heard that before? Well, it may be more familiar to us because we've heard it in Psalm 23, right? Verse 4. It's that same word there. And in other words, this shadow of death, what it really is, is that dark of darkness. It's as if death, in the words of Ed Welch, has come near. But here's the message. As dark as that darkness may be, hope has broken into our darkness and turned on the lights. Have you ever had the experience of being in the dark and then suddenly the lights come on? For me, it was many years back before I was a parent and Hejong and I had visited Las Vegas and we were walking down the Las Vegas Strip. And if you've, if you've ever been there, you might know that uh, the city is right in the middle of the Nevadan Desert, and so there are certain times of the year where it gets really hot during the day, but then when the sun goes down, it actually can feel pretty cool and even cold at night. And so we were walking the strip in the middle of a 100 degree day, yet the part of it that we were walking, we were flanked on both sides by these massive buildings. Buildings so big that they practically blacked out the sun casting these deep shadows over the street. And so as we were walking, strangely, I felt myself getting cold. And the more I walked, it even seemed to be dark out, where the thing that was actually illuminating the street wasn't the sun, but the lights from the vendors in the buildings around. But that didn't last long, because soon enough, I got to the end of the block. And within an instant, stepped out from the shadow, and it was as if somebody turned the lights on. It was as if I came out of darkness into light, came out of the cold into the warmth of the desert sun again. The message of Christmas is that no matter how dark and cold life may be, no matter how mountainous or menacing our sin or our suffering, a great light has beamed into our darkness. And that light is our hope.
three things we learn about the hope of Christmas. Really two, and then we'll close with some application. First, when this light beams into our darkness, we have hope for a promised restoration. We see in this text that there's a promised restoration. Now, you may have observed a few oddities about the way this passage reads. I just mentioned how suddenly it goes from gloom to hope and how that itself is actually part of the message. But did you notice also in verse 3, Isaiah starts addressing God directly in the second person. Not only that, after prophesying what will be in verse 1, he then elaborates on it as if it's already happened. And all this may strike us as strange. It's kind of an odd way of speaking, especially given the way our Western minds prefer to organize facts. However, what Isaiah is communicating here is far more beautiful and profound than just facts. By addressing God directly and speaking in the past tense, which is actually a Hebrew literary convention called the prophetic perfect, Isaiah is actually signaling that these things he's prophesying aren't just wishful thinking. They're not hopes and dreams. But these are divine promises. And even though they hadn't happened yet, the fact that God himself has promised they will means that they're as good as done. They're a fate accompli. There's a curious phrase in the Korean language which... Um, most Korean parents learn to master by the time their children are, say, five years old. And it's the phrase in Korean, pawata. And what that kind of more or less translates to is, we have arrived. And the reason why this is such an important phrase for Korean parents to know is because Korean children, like all children, have this mysterious penchant for repeatedly asking the question, are we there yet? And I myself, as a Korean parent, know the answer to that question. It is tawata. And I've learned to use that and get plenty of mileage out of it on road trips with my own daughter. Because we could be 100 miles out from wherever we're going. If she asks, are we there yet? All I need to say, all dad needs to say is tawata. And the fact that it's dad or mom who says, we, we've arrived. It doesn't matter that we're 100 miles out. Dad or mom have decreed that we have arrived. And so please, no more are we there yet. And this is, there's a similar parallel in what we're seeing Isaiah doing here. See, we have the strong hope in the midst of our darkness because it's God himself who promises restoration. Now, what, what is it that God promises to restore? Three things. First, joy. We see that in verse 3. Now, of course, for a people whose lives were full of distress, gloom, and anguish, the prospect of a life of joy is irresistible. But notice that the joy God promises, it's not just a feeling of cheer or happiness. It might include that, but it's not only that. The kind of joy with which one rejoices at the harvest, or when dividing the spoils of war, has more to do with deep contentment gratitude and security than simply an emotional state. God provides abundantly for his people, and in that we rejoice. Secondly, he promises freedom from oppression. That's verse 4. 
You see, for Israel and Judah, the imagery Isaiah uses here would have reminded them of their history of slavery in Egypt. And with the looming threat of Assyrian invasion on the horizon, they'd be tempted to wonder if political oppression was just going to be their lot in life. But God promises that it will not always be. All of the implements of oppression that once enslaved them, the yoke, the staff, the rod, he promises to one day shatter. And though oppression may take on different forms in our day, the same promise holds true for us as well, dear friends. After all, whether it be human trafficking, spiritual abuse, or racial discrimination, all forms of oppression are acts of dehumanization and exploiting and reducing of God's image bearers to objects, or worse, to cattle, which is ultimately the terrible outworking of our slavery to sin. God's promise to us is that there is a day when sin's tyranny in all of its outworkings, systemic, relational, and personal, will be broken for good. But thirdly, he also promises peace. And there you have it in verse 5. Back in chapter 2, we saw this last Sunday. Isaiah envisaged a time when warring people groups would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's a beautiful image. And likewise, here he describes a future when not only will the tools of war become obsolete, but the memory of war will be burned away. The shalom that God promises is more than just a cessation of conflict. It means a world where all is as it should be. So much so that conflict and war are no longer even a possibility. Now, all this might sound too good to be true. You might be wondering, okay, how exactly will God pull all this off? Well, that's what we find out in the, in the last two verses. And that brings us to our second point. Hope comes through a power reversal. We see a promised restoration, but we also see a power reversal. Isaiah's already hinted at this in earlier verses. In verse 1, he mentions Zebulun and Naphtali, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What's he talking about here? Earlier this week, uh, the local sports media was all abuzz with the news of the monumental sports group uh, possibly moving the Washington Wizards and Capitals out of D.C., to Potomac Yard, Virginia. And for me, as somebody who didn't grow up here and doesn't have native loyalties to any, any particular locality in the DMV, it was interesting to see the kind of reactions that this started to get out of people. I was tracking the developments throughout the week. And the reactions weren't just strong from DC residents but it was especially the kind of reactions that came out of Maryland residents that piqued my interest. Um, there was even uh, somebody on Sports Talk Radio who talked about how if the Wizards and the Capitals moved to Virginia, they vowed to never attend a game ever again. And for those of you who are from here, you might recognize that as at least partly a kind of intra-DMV rivalry or territorialism. Um, but for those of us who aren't, 
it seems somewhat, uh, somewhat different that three localities within just miles of one another would have such animosity for one another. And that's a very weak analogy to the kind of regional dynamics that Isaiah is referring to here in verse 1. You see, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were part of the northern region of Israel, which had long fallen prey to foreign invaders. And they had since become so culturally and spiritually intertwined that many Judeans barely considered them kin anymore. Thus the pejorative term, Galilee of the nations. It's a sentiment echoed in Nathaniel's question in John chapter 1, if you remember there. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, which is in Galilee? And yet, yet, Isaiah prophesies that in the latter time, when God's redeeming light breaks into the darkness, Galilee, of all places, will be its port of arrival. And in verse 4, he references the day of Midian, which Elder David read about earlier in Judges 7, when God commanded Gideon to reduce his army from 32,000 to 300 and to make sure that they were the ones who, uh, who distinguished themselves by lapping water like dogs. Why? Well, verse 2 is the, is the key. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Do you see what the lesson is here? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God will indeed restore joy freedom and peace to his people. But the way he does so is through weakness and foolishness, through a reversal of power. Listen to what uh, commentator John Oswald says. How will God deliver from arrogance, war, oppression, and coercion? By being more arrogant, more warlike, more oppressive, and more coercive? Surely the book of Isaiah indicates frequently that God was powerful enough to destroy his enemies in an instant. Yet again and again, when the prophet comes to the heart of the means of deliverance, a childlike face peers out at us. God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, transparent, and humble. The only hope, in fact, for turning enmity into friendship. And it's that childlike face that peers out at us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. How will God deliver us from arrogance, war, oppression, and coercion? For to us, a child is born. And by adding to us, a son is given, that isn't a kind of gender reveal on Isaiah's part. The language he uses is that of the all-familiar John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son. In other words, make no mistake, this child who is to be born to us was first begotten of the Father. Yet in being born, he is in fact the Father's gift to us. So what kind of gift is he? Well, he's a king. 
The government shall be upon his shoulder. Isaiah, Isaiah goes on to list out four famous titles, and you can almost hear the music already, can't you? Each of which would merit their own sermons to expound. But as well known as these titles are, we don't want their splendor to just wash over us. Because the way they're constructed, these titles are actually a series of compound nouns which are carefully grouped together to paint a glorious portrait. And so by wonderful counselor, it's not meant simply that this king is great at counseling, like how I might describe a therapist who really helped me improve my mental health. Rather, this is a king who, as the source of all wisdom, is simply a wonder, an awe-striking marvel. Likewise, even in the title Mighty God, the sense isn't so much that he is God and as such is able to lift really heavy weights. Rather, the word for mighty carries more the sense of hero. In other words, this king is heroic in the way that only God can save. As everlasting father, he not only has spiritual children and happens to live forever. What's more, all of the strength, protection, and provision we'd ever need will forever be found in him. Finally, when it comes to the title Prince of Peace, here's John Oswald again. What sort of king is this? He is a peaceful king, one who comes in peace and one who establishes peace, not by a brutal squashing of all defiance, but by means of a transparent vulnerability, which makes defiance pointless. Of the increase of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. Yet unlike all earthly kings, this king secures peace through peace. The means and the ends to his kingly rule are one and the same. And all throughout Isaiah's prophecy, the two virtues that have all but vanished from the land, namely justice and righteousness, here find perfect fulfillment in this promised king. Righteousness as the utter perfection of his character and personhood. Justice as the carrying out of that righteous character in kingly practice. And yet, as we trace this portrait of kingly power all the way to its incarnation, we find peering back at us the face of a child, the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has made good on his promise to restore all that was lost, Jesus, John tells us, is that light that shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This King Jesus, born not with pomp and pageantry in some epicenter of civic power, but in a feeding trough for farm animals in Galilee of the nations. And beginning with his incarnation all the way through his humiliation on the cross, Jesus alone was the king who was able to outshine the deep darkness, the death shadow. Yet he did so not with any levers of earthly power, but rather by reversing that power through his own weakness. The Apostle Paul again, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, because of Christ's incarnation, hope is a present reality. And we'll close with that point. Hope is a present reality. We've seen that 
It's a promised restoration, that it comes through a power reversal, but lastly, hope is a present reality. Remember that prophetic perfect of Isaiah chapter 9? Well, for us on this side of the incarnation, that prophetic perfect is even perfecter. Unlike Israel and Judah, to us, the child has been born. To us, the son has been given. But you and I both know we're still living in the latter times. The end has not yet come. We're living in the already, but not yet, of history. Nevertheless, hope can still be ours. It can be our present reality, even as the vestiges of darkness remain. Are you living as if that's true? Or are you still passing through the land, greatly distressed and hungry? Maybe you've never considered what a relationship with the Christ child, this baby, this king, this light could be like. Turn your face upward, not in contempt or rage, but in wonder. Consider the things we're singing about this Advent season, the mystery. Stop looking to the earth, to whatever modern-day necromancers or mediums you've put your hope in, only to come up empty every time. Receive this light that's penetrated into our darkness, this child who is king. Receive Jesus today as God's gift to you, not as the world gives with its so-called wisdom and power, but as the one who descended into true greatness for you, even to the point of death on a cross. But dear Christian friend, I would ask you as well, Is the hope of Christmas your present reality? Are you living as a follower of the king who came to us in weakness as a child? Or are you still holding onto an upside-down system of earthly power that's already passing away? Consider the way you relate to others, those who are less privileged or different from you. Do you find yourself sizing them up according to earthly standards of value? Or do you move toward them with incarnational love and service? I would encourage you, dear Christian friend, during this season of Advent, use this time to repent of any misplaced hope in your life, be it financial security, status or prestige, even your religious performance. Receive afresh the grace, the peace, the true hope that's come to us in the birth of this humble king. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you for being who you are. You are holy. You are entirely other, entirely alien from all earthly kings, anything we've ever encountered before. Your testimonies are true. Heaven and earth are in your hands, and yet you wield your power, your knowledge, your weight, not to oppress, not to coerce, not to manipulate, not to deceive, but to elevate, to serve, to redeem, to heal, and to restore. Who is a God like you? We know none. 
You alone are the light that comes into our darkness and lights it up. Pray that you would do that in a new and fresh way for us this Advent season. Continue to dawn the light of the hope that we have in your gospel so that our hearts would be glad. We would rejoice as at the harvest. And may we experience a little bit of that now as we come to your table, this feast that you've laid out for us by your grace, for our good and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.